The easiest way to support this podcast is to tell one friend. Thanks. Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. The task of translating the Bible into English was undertaken by a group of scholars approved by King James I. All were members of the Church of England, and most were clergy. The scholars worked in six committees, two based in each of the University of Oxford, the University of Cambridge, and Westminster. The committees included scholars with Puritan sympathies, as well as high churchmen. The committees worked on certain parts separately, and the drafts produced by each committee were then compared and revised for harmony with each other. The scholars were not paid directly for their translation work. Instead, they were considered for appointment to well-paid livings and or promoted within the church through royal patronage. The publication of the King James Version of the Bible, the most widely published book in the English language. It's been called our national epic, the noblest monument of English prose, and rivaled only by Shakespeare for the beauty and influence of its language. James Nocht is in Oxford, where some of the best scholars of the age met to hone the texts which would become part of the national memory. The story of the King James Bible continues now with the translation. We're in the Bodleian Library to look at some of the other biblical sources that were available to the translators working on the King James Bible. As we look at these wonderful volumes, to what extent is it difficult, perhaps even impossible, to disentangle the politics of the time from the various religious disputes and theological arguments that we're going to be touching on? It's a point, James, really, that can't be overestimated or exaggerated. And all of these Bibles that we'll be looking at today are inextricably bound up with both theology and politics. And in front of us, as we speak, is a wonderful volume. This is the Great Bible of 1539, in the time of Henry VIII. Describe this wonderful frontispiece that's lying here. It's extraordinarily exciting to see it at this range, isn't it? It's it is, and it's, it's absolutely at the other end of the universe from everything we've been saying about Tyndall. Tyndall in private, actually producing a tiny book, smuggled into England, illegal, people prosecuted. Here, the state effectively absorbs the whole of the Reformation. So you have at the top of this frontispiece the king himself presiding over his kingdom handing out the word of God, verbum Dei, to the church on one side, to the laity on the other, and that word of God rippling down in English to the common people at the bottom. And the common people at the bottom do not say, thank goodness for God, they say... God save the king, vivat rex. There they all are, and it's coming out of every mouth. Now, is this Thomas Cromwell lurking around here? Thomas Cromwell, and there are his coat of arms, because at this stage, when this is produced in 1539, he is still riding high. In later editions, the knife would be out, and that is scratched away. It's a tremendous volume to see here in all its glory in front of us. What was the significance of this great Bible? The significance is that this is Tyndall's text, essentially, buried in this enormous and magnificent volume, but it has become an instrument of state. This is the English crown essentially putting itself into exactly the position the Pope had previously occupied. It's very exciting to turn the pages and see at the top the creation of the world and the beginning of Genesis. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth, and the earth was void and empty, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. 
to see this coming to us from 1539. Well, it's also exciting to think of these volumes arriving in English parishes. Just imagine this book turning up and someone then reading it to the people who'd never heard it before. The second Bible in front of us is known as the Geneva Bible. This is a copy from 1560. Rather smaller, a beautiful book. Tell us the story of this translation. Well, this book was produced by a group of English exiles who were Protestant and in effect felt they had to leave England under Mary Tudor. They felt their lives were in danger. This particular group settled in the Protestant city of Geneva, dominated by John Calvin. As a translation, it's actually very good. But we have open in front of us the title page. And again, it has a picture. The key things to note are there are no imageries of kings or queens. There's an absolute affirmation of where real authority lies just here in the motto. The Lord is my light and my salvation. There is no king here. What reigns supreme is the word of God. And this Bible is designed to make that point absolutely clear. So we can see how for many people in England, this was a dangerous document. This was a very dangerous document. A good example of this is that this Bible is not simply the text of Scripture, a very good translation, but also has marginal notes explaining what the text means. And these are very critical of kings and queens. For example, if we take Exodus chapter 1, which talks about Pharaoh oppressing the Israelites and how he ordered every firstborn Israelite to be slain, we have the story of the nurses hiding Moses. The marginal notes say, well, you know, if kings are going to behave like that, what can you do? In Suggesting words, that's what they do. It's in their right. blood. They do something wrong. You don't obey them. You disobey them. And it seems to me as if the illustration here on the frontispiece is of the parting of the Red Sea and the escape of the Israelites from the Pharaoh. Is that right? This is um, an Old Testament depiction. This is the fire and the cloudy pillar in the distance, the parting of the Red Sea. Again, it's not talking about kingly power. It's talking about the power of God and saying it is on this power that you must ultimately rest. But it's saying more than that. It's saying here are the people threatened by a king being saved by a god. I think we need to remember that, strictly speaking, it's not fleeing from an oppressive king, but fleeing from an oppressive queen in the person of Mary Tudor, which will become very important in subsequent generations. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-218-6010. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-218-6010. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-218-6010. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. From a literary scholar's point of view, we should remember that this was the Bible that Shakespeare read, that Spencer read, that Christopher Marlowe read. Yes, any of my students reading the greats of early modern or Renaissance literature are taught to be alert to biblical allusions. But one of the first things I have to rush to tell them is to say, you need to use something you've probably never heard of, and that's the Geneva Bible. Because right through the 17th century, it was this Bible to which all of those great authors turned, not the King James. 
The third of our Bibles is the Bishop's Bible, the Holy Bible containing the Old Testament and the New, authorised and appointed to be read in churches. What is the significance of the Bishop's Bible? The Bishop's Bible, as it first appeared, looks slightly different than the copy we're looking at here, which is This one is later. from 1602. And I, I can explain that, but I would like to back up to its first appearance, which was in 1568. Elizabeth has been on the throne since 1559. The Elizabethan settlement has been established, establishing a Protestant Church of England. The Geneva Bible that we've just heard about come back with, from Geneva itself and been taken up with great zeal. And Elizabeth and her bishops and archbishops are getting increasingly anxious about the impact the Geneva Bible is making. So through her archbishop, Matthew Parker, the bishops agree to come up with a new translation that will be the official lectern Bible for the Church of England. And this is and it. this is it. When that thing first appeared in 1568, it's important to imagine that the frontispiece was very different from the one we're looking at here, because it had in a wonderful oval a very finely engraved portrait of the young Queen Elizabeth with the legend underneath it that said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And that was making a hugely important statement to the English people of all persuasions, to those who might have hoped that she would take things in a conservative Catholic direction. She was embracing the tradition of the scriptures in the vernacular. But also saying to Puritans or Geneva Bible readers, hey guys, I love this too. The copy we're looking at now, because it was official for well over 40 years, was printed in 1602 and is one of the great treasures of the Bodleian, not just because it's a bishop's Bible, but there are some very interesting scribbles in the margins. Those scribbles are almost indisputably annotations made by one of the translators. And sure enough, the bishop's Bible was, of course, according to Bishop Bancroft's instructions, the Bible that the translators were to use as their base copy. As we heard from Hampton Court, Adam, Richard Bancroft, the Bishop of London, was very anxious that the process of the translation should be very tightly controlled. Now, what do we learn about that from this Bible? Well, he first of all said that every one of the translators, the 50-odd translators, had to take some of this Bishop's Bible text home with them and do it privately at home. That's the first level. Then each of them should bring their suggestions and then jointly that committee would decide on a text which they would submit to the final revising committee in London. We remember that there were six groups of scholars, two of them here in Oxford, and you're saying that this very volume in front of us was certainly there in front of one of the groups that was working on the King James Bible. Yes. Check out the YouTube version of this episode which has accompanying images. I'm Mark Vinette. And I hope you're enjoying the ride. The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ.